So welcome to the first episode of Everybody Has a Crazy Story. This podcast came about in my mind uh, because I know that I have several, several crazy stories that I do like to tell amongst my friends from time to time. And uh, they certainly instill feelings, thoughts, conversations that I have within myself still to this day. So, you know, in this series, this first episode is going to be one of my stories. But my hope is that I'm able to gather stories from friends, family, strangers, anyone, because we all have those crazy stories. And they don't all have to be about something terrible. They could be about a rainbow that happened to pop out of the sky when you needed it most, or could be about, you know, a time when you took a path in life that deviated you towards a direction you were never expecting. You know, life is about those paths, and a lot of them, and the small deviations are things that we don't really think about too often. You know, you go go to this coffee shop instead of that coffee shop, and the one you went to, you happen to get a person in front of you paid for your coffee well the other one maybe the next day someone else got their coffee paid for you know these little deviations in life but in all of our lives we have these deviations that these these paths these forks in the road that we may not see in front of us until they're behind us and these are those moments that I'm trying to capture these are the moments that I have recognized in my own life and I have several stories that uh, certainly fit the bill and I, um, I'm going to save one good one for down the road. Uh, and I've got a couple in between. But this first episode, this first story, um, was extremely impactful in my life. All the way up to this day. And it starts out in July of 2003. And... It was like a normal day. It, I, was, I was living in Providence at the time in an apartment. I had a beautiful uh, garden room in my second floor apartment. And this particular day, my roommate was out. I don't know where he was. And I had to be at work at 3 o'clock. I'm notoriously early for work. Uh, still to this day, many moons later. And this particular afternoon... I was getting ready to go at about, wanted to leave around 2 o'clock. Takes me about 25 minutes to get to work. And it was about 1.45. And I was sitting on my little couch, ready to go, but still a little too early to leave. And I decided to just uh, sit down for a second and write a poem. And I've been looking for that poem for years now. I haven't found it, but it, it, it was about traipsing across a creek in a storm and choosing your stones as you traipsed across the creek you know like a a child crossing a creek and how and as they chose their stones and what each one kind of meant and that's just my memory of that poem um I did have it for a while I did reflect on it for a while and I've moved a couple times since and I've lost track of it. I, I'm hoping that it's in my basement. I haven't given it a good college try to find. But So I wrote this poem, and I 
got up from my couch about two o'clock, walked out to my car. Now at the time I was driving a uh, champagne, I believe was the, the color from Honda, but a 1996 Honda Accord, uh, champagne in color. And I got in my car, I turned the local radio station on, and I started my drive to work. My 25-minute drive took me out of my little inner city-ish neighborhood, down a road, on, onto a highway, onto another highway. And so I'm taking this drive, and as I'm heading towards the highway, it had been raining on and off that day, and it started to come down. It was one of those beautiful, hot, summer torrential rainstorms in the middle of the afternoon where it was almost one of those days where it was still sunny out in some parts of your view but the rain was just pouring down and I'm on the highway and I'm in the slow lane because that's generally where I like to travel probably going 65 miles per hour and I'll never forget you know I saw this car whiz by me you know, saw the girl inside the car, didn't really catch her, don't, don't remember in that view of her at that moment what my thought of her was, other than that I saw this girl, woman, drive by with her windows down in the pouring rain, looked like her hair was in my memory, her hair was blowing out the window a little bit, <clears throat> and my car, I was driving I had the radio on, like I said, and the song on the radio at that moment was that Four Non Blondes song, you know. I'm not going to try to sing it. Hopefully it's in the background of this podcast as you're listening. But, so, I'm driving on this highway. The rain is pouring, coming down, and I'm, I'm relaxed. At the time, I was in my early 20s. I hadn't met my girlfriend at the time who turned into my fiance who's now my wife I hadn't met her yet I was just free and you know cruising to work I had a whole world by the balls to use a cliche and at my job I was a grill cook at a local steakhouse and um, you know I love showing up to work I love being at work it was like my family. I, my, I'm not from Providence, Rhode Island. I'm from down south in Maryland, Washington, D.C. area. And this this was like where my friend group was, if you will, you know. And so I really loved going to work. I was in between semesters at school. And it was a beautiful summer day. And in that slow lane as I'm going... All of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, my left eye, that same little blue car with that same girl in it was hydroplaning right in front of my car. And in my memory, it was so close to my bumper, I could have tapped her if I would sped up a hair. And because I was all the way in the right lane, the slow lane, if you will, she just careened right in front of me as graceful as you could imagine and right into the grassy area of the highway and it just so happened that where she exited the highway there was a break in the guardrail 
So this highway, and I, I've studied it for years, and, ser- and since then they've actually changed the guardrail too, so you couldn't even go and see it the way it was now. But there was just so happened to be a gap in the guardrail that once she crossed in front of me, she made that gap. And this is the first point of reflection I've always thought about is, man, you know, if she had hit that guardrail and bounced right back, she would have hit me, but... She continued off the side of the highway. And right there on the side of the highway, the the grass took a steep upclip just beyond where the guardrail was or would be. And at like I keep like I said, like I said earlier, just as graceful as you could imagine, her car rolled over onto its roof and slid upside down because if I was going 65 she was she blew by me earlier I don't know where she was after that you know and then she obviously backed up or whatever but at the time she hydroplaned she was still in front of me so she was going a little bit faster than me so she was probably going 67 70 who knows and she and the car rolled onto its roof and continued sliding forward and about 50 yards in front of where she exited the highway and then rolled onto her roof, all moving forward the whole time, she slid upside down into those side retention ponds on the side of highways sometimes, but it wasn't like a a trough that kept going somewhere. It was like this was the end of the trough. This is where all the water collected. This was a pond at the time because... Like I said, it was a summer rain and it was pouring. And so this pond, if you will, this retention pond, this runoff pond was full. And she slid forward upside down into the pond. And I saw all of that happen in front of me. And because I was in the right lane of the highway, I was the first one to slow down. So I, as soon as she slid off the highway and I saw her roll upside down, I pulled into that shoulder part of the highway and started to slow down. And I knew she was upside down in that pond because I saw her get there before I stopped. And at this point, she was behind me probably by a good 50 yards. I'm on the highway and the car's upside down in the pond. And in my memory, it was like one motion where I'm getting out of the car and I'm holding nine down on my cell phone at the time. It was like a silver metal coated Nokia flip phone or a Motorola flip phone. And it was that one and only time, right, that I can remember that I actually got to hold the nine down. You know, the nine was always red on your on those old cell phones. And. Where I was driving was I was living in Providence and driving into Massachusetts. And where this happened was on a particular part of the highway where the state changed. So I'm holding nine down. I get to the top of the hill and I'm looking down about to come down the embankment into the water. And I pause for a brief second to get my bearings and I don't know if the 911 operator had quite answered yet or if I was still holding nine, but I definitely remember looking at this scene in the torrential rain. I mean, cats and dogs rain coming down 
and seeing that silvery, shimmery, rainbow ring around the car from the oil and the gasoline that was now obviously leaking out and the wheels were still spinning. And because the car was now upside down, the steam from the rain hitting the muffler and the other things underneath the car that are hot, you know, it was a very visceral, visceral, visual scene. And I remember then at that point coming down the embankment on the phone with the 911 operator and she said you know where are you I, I I described what I had seen briefly quickly I told her what highway we were on and I told her where I thought we were what direction of the highway I told her I didn't know what state I was in because we were literally on the line and it ended up being that we were in Rhode Island but Massachusetts and Rhode Island did show up but then Massachusetts was relieved I guess um eventually I should say so I dove into the water not dove head first I jumped into the water and um have the cell phone in my up in the up above the water the I'm now approaching the vehicle when I jumped in from what would be the passenger side but it was upside down so I I was able to get the back door open like ducking under the water trying to open the door um and I I couldn't I couldn't talk on the phone and deal with the situation at the same time and right around then I looked back up the embankment because from that perspective now I was considerably below the highway I looked up the embankment and at that point there was another person up there hollering down to me but I couldn't really hear what they were saying because of the rain and the highway I mean it was we're on a highway so the noise was intense the white noise I should say so I ran back up out of the water to give this person my phone so that I could jump all my energy into what I needed to do and I gave them my phone and at that point there was another gentleman so there was three of us at the top when I ran back up and he said did you find anybody and I said not yet but I know there's a woman in there because I had seen her on the highway she passed me and I knew, I mean, I didn't know if she had a kid in the car. I didn't know what, but I knew, I knew there was one woman in that car at least. And so he and I then ran back down the hill. And this time it was more like a dive. We both dove into the water and slightly thrashing around, slightly, you know, ripping as the door as, back, as hard as we could on the back door and the front door and moving around the grassy, mossy, greens that were in the water and and it, it it happened very fast but we were only about five or eight feet apart from each other me and this other gentleman and as I was working to get in and into the car from the front uh, passenger door instead of the rear passenger door I was trying to work to get that open I heard him say 
oh shit. And I looked over at him. And like I said, we're only about five, eight feet apart from each other. And there in between us, just below the water, was a woman in her face. And her hands were floating. And her shirt, she still had her shirt on and everything, but her, like, her breast area were floating. So that the, her chest was a little floating and her hands were floating. And we we looked at each other and we looked at her and her face though her face was just about two inches under the water her eyes were wide open and so we each grabbed a shoulder I think I grabbed her left shoulder and he grabbed her right shoulder and we continued over to the embankment pulled her over to the embankment And this is the area where a lot of self-reflection has come in. And I'll talk about it after the story. But So we pull her up the embankment and she's gurgling. She's pushing, it sounds like, with every bit of her might. She's crackling. She's trying to breathe. And she has blood coming out of both her nostrils both ears, both corners of both eyes and her eyes were wide open and she wasn't breathing and but she was alive 100% and he looks at me and he says do you know CPR Uh, actually I think I looked at him and I said do you know CPR and he said no and I, I did and at the time it was 15 compressions and two breaths 15 compressions and two breaths And so I told him that, 15 and 2. So we immediately started chest compressions. And I tipped her head back. And after his 15 compressions, I blew, you know, two breaths and then 15 compressions. And I think we only got through two rounds of that before the crackling. And what my grandfather called when he was telling me World War II stories, the, the death rattle before it elevated and we sat back we pulled back and she rattled and she and she died and she turned completely blue like I've never you know I I didn't know that's what happened when you die obviously you know your veins are blue and your arteries are red and that's because there's oxygen in your blood and your arteries and your veins are going back to the lungs to get the heart I mean to get the oxygen or whatever the you know, the physiologists will say, but she completely turned blue and he looked at me and he said, did she just die? And I said, I think she did. And for the briefest of moments before we started back chest compressions, I, I just felt the need to neaten her up a little bit. She had her sweatshirt had pulled up in or a ruffle kind of under her bosom area and her, and you know, her hair was all crazy and I cleaned the hair off of her face and I un- kind of pulled her her sweatshirt down be- covering her belly, which was kind of exposed. And she, as I'm pulling her sweatshirt down, I like, 
I told this to the police later and I don't know if they thought I was like, I tried to rob her and had second thoughts about it or what, because it sounds so cockamamie and crazy. But as I'm unrolling, unruffling her sweatshirt, it was one of those hooded sweatshirts with like pockets, a big pocket in the front. But when I unrolled it on top of the pocket was a ring that was obviously hers, but it wasn't on her. It wasn't on her and it wasn't lost and it wasn't, it didn't sink to the bottom of that pond. It, it, it was somehow rolled up, ruffled inside in the sweatshirt, but not in the pocket. And as I unrolled it, I, I just, I grabbed it. Like I took it and I didn't want it to get lost. And, you know, it was, it was just this moment that I, I didn't want this item that was, you know, cause I, at the time wore a ring for my grandfather and now I'm, you know, gained weight and I'm older now and doesn't fit on my finger and I wear it around my neck. But I thought that there was probably so much intrinsic value in this ring for her and her family. And, you know, a little side note part of this story, and, and I meant to do the research and some of you guys can email me or comment and tell me what it was. But the, the one of the trippier parts of this is that she had had a birth defect this woman and I'm, I'm not going to use her real name and her family probably has never heard this story uh per se I, mean, I don't know what the cops wrote up in the report afterwards i've never talked to her family i certainly looked at her up i certainly looked up the story and all that i know her name but you know we'll just we'll call her uh janice and um so janice had been um born i don't know you know i, I do know how old she was when she died but she had been born from a, a with a birth defect common in the 70s from some medicine they used for something or other. I, I don't know what I did look it up at one point, but it, but it left her with these short, shorter arms and like penguin type hands like she didn't have every finger or she did, but they were little and small and angular. And, and so anyway, we start doing chest compressions again and... I've got this ring in my hand and I'm tipping her head back. And, you know, at, by that point, I really don't know my, how much time had gone by. It probably wasn't a lot. It probably wasn't any more than five or ten minutes at most, if that, right? And right around then, right around two or three more sessions of the chest compressions after she died, after we took two seconds to clean her up a little bit, we started again. Then the fire rescue arrived, came down, picked us up. I remember him picking me up by my shoulders, kind of. And one person, they must have assigned one person to each of us, me and the other gentleman. I never got his name, never saw him again, never no idea who he is. But uh, took us back to the top of the highway and sat us, sat us separately in, in, in police cars. And I remember sitting there probably for 20 minutes, you know, as this rain was coming down and I'm watching the scene and watching them. And I did, I sat in that police car and watched them take her away. And at that point they had somebody on her doing compressions and they had somebody, you know, once they got her to the top of the, the embankment, if you will, and somebody with the squeeze thing that goes over your mouth to replace, you know, the, the breaths. And I put her in the ambulance and she left. And uh, and then 
the police officer got in the vehicle, the Rhode Island State Trooper, and he sat in there and he opened his pad and I recounted the story just like I did to you guys for you guys just now and I didn't as I'm telling the story I didn't remember that the ring was in my hand until I got to that part of the story and that's when I opened my hand and I in that moment I thought about all the memories that that ring holds for her for her family and I, I gave it to the police officer and he took it from me. I, I don't know. In my mind's eye memory, I kind of remember a little questioning look like, why did you take this ring from her? But I, I didn't take it off her body. I found it in her sweatshirt wrapped up and I imagined all the chaos and commotion that she was about to be going through. And I took it not to keep. I took it to preserve amongst the melee and I'm sure he delivered it to her family um and you know what happened pretty soon after that was you know I I I he let you know he he took my my statement and he gave me a card and an address to be at the next day he said I'd like you to come back to the you know barracks tomorrow around 11 o'clock and give an updated statement and we'll give you an update on 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 her and you know because there was all this traffic they stopped the highway for this you know but I was ahead of that so I got in my car and the very next exit was my my exit from my job and but I was soaking head to toe I mean I had been underwater I'd been completely underwater I mean my entire head everything my I had been completely submerged underwater while we were looking for her. but anyway so I went to work and I remember coming around to the back door and ringing the bell. And my boss at the time, I had two bosses there that day, our general manager and our kitchen manager and the kitchen manager, Glover, he opened the door and he said, holy shit, you're okay. And apparently some people had come through the traffic jam and seen my car on the side of the highway. And they all got to work and they said, holy crap. Tom's cars on the side of the highway, you know, with this accident. And by this point it was on the news. So they had the news on and he comes out the back door and he says, Holy shit, you're alive. What's going on? What happened? You're, you're, you're okay. And I, I told him this, that same story at, in a bridged version of a speed version. Of, I was like next to tears. I was like, you know, on the brink, I guess I was in shock still. And he said to me, well, you know, Scott's gonna want to talk to you and hear about this and Scott was our general manager and he said why don't you not walk through the restaurant because everybody's you know thinking of you and work worried for you and wants to, you know will probably swarm you if you walk through the restaurant why don't you meet him around front so I walked around front of the entire restaurant and I sat on the front benches where people wait for their takeout food and Scott came out and he's a good friend still to this day and he sat down and he I told him that story again so now Three times. One, I lived it, and then I recounted it three times in probably a half hour, 30 minutes or so. And Scott looks at me, and, you know, it was going to be a busy night. And I was the main guy on the cook line. I was the grill cook. And I'm sure he was mostly concerned with me, but, you know, as with any job, 
concerned with what he's going to do without me for the moment when he was expecting me to be there. But and he looked at me and he said, well, what do you want to do, man? And you want to go home? I said, go home. I said, fight that traffic that I just witnessed the cause of just to get home to sit by myself after all that. I said, I'd rather be here, work with all my friends. And so he stood up and he broke out a couple $20 bills and he said, all right, go across the street. There was a Coles across the street. Buy yourself a new pair of socks, shoes, and a pair of pants. I'll have a shirt for you. And he went back in and actually got me the shirt before I left for Coles. And I went across the street to Coles. I changed in my car. I shopped soaking wet. I mean, sloshing around. Changed. Came back to work. At this point now, I was late. Hour late. Although I actually showed up on time when I showed up at that back door. But, um, and I ended up working the entire night. I ended up working my entire shift, cleaning up. I think Glover was probably supposed to go home and leave me to run the line alone that night. Um, But he stuck by me the whole night. And from a work perspective, it was an absolutely perfect, magical night. It was, I had a really great night at work. No recooks, no cookups on the steaks. Nothing came back. Everything went off without a hitch. And and I went home and I laid in bed. I wrote this down. I was writing a lot at the time and I wrote it down as best I could, just like I recounted it now, but I put it in on paper. And I've just done a lot of thinking afterwards. I've done a lot of, you know, it's been over, because that was 20, oh, three and now it's 2021 and I don't lose sleep over it I don't lie in bed thinking about it I don't fret you know I really don't I'm not a depressed type of individual but I think about if we had pulled her up with her feet first on the embankment instead of shoulders first would have would gravity have pulled the water out of her lungs instead of gravity sinking it to the bottom of her lungs? You know, I think about if I had been going half a mile faster, if she had clipped the corner of my car and I would have spun out, it would have been a much worse accident. I think about that part of that guardrail that wasn't there. It wasn't supposed to be there. It wasn't like it was chopped out. It was like literally just not part of the plan. It wasn't there. But what I think about the most is that if I was going to die in the pouring rain on the side of a highway, I also wouldn't want to die alone. And this woman didn't die alone. And she was certainly alive when we pulled her out. She was, you know... As God is my witness, or whoever you want to bow to is my witness. She was alive. She couldn't communicate. She couldn't talk. She couldn't breathe. But she could see and she could hear. She knows she didn't die alone. And that's the kind of, you know, grace that I take from the story. You know, that's what keeps me from suffering with hindsight, you know. I should have done this. I should have done that. What if this had happened? What if that had happened? You know, this is one of those life lessons with this story for me personally. And I'm not telling this to 
give you any of this lesson, you know, any lessons. This is mostly for probably entertainment purposes. But in reality, the lessons that it taught me were the smallest of things in your life can end up having some of the greatest impact. And all those things adding up, I didn't savor. I didn't savor. This isn't a story of heroism. This isn't a story of me getting a championship belt in life for pulling a lady out of a water and pumping her full of air and saving her and bringing her back to life. That's not what happened. She died. She died right there on that highway. But she didn't die alone. And I think all those things added up because I had nothing to do with her speed. I had nothing to do with her timing. I had nothing to do with her foot on her brake or what was on her radio that she was singing. So she was going to tap her brake and she was going to hydroplane and she was going to go through that little guardrail no matter where I was on the planet. And But all my things, all my little pieces added up to me being there with her on the side of the highway to ensure that she didn't die alone. So that's my crazy story for the day. Twenty five years, I'm a lot of steel, trying to.